Welcome to the Bible Questions podcast brought to you by BibleQuestions.org and the Holly Street Church of Christ. This podcast is dedicated to answering your Bible questions from the Bible. My name is Brian, and along with Jeff, we are the hosts of this program. Hello, and welcome to the Bible Questions podcast. My name is Jeff, and along with me today is our co-host, Brian. Hey, good morning, Brian. How are you doing? Great, great. Looking forward to uh, wrapping up this series. Of course, I know when we started this, Jeff, we were hoping that we could get all this material into a couple episodes, but I think it's kind of reflective of how much there is to discuss, right? We kind of had to stretch this to a third episode. Yes, indeed. And for those of our uh, listeners who have encountered this particular podcast first, uh, this is the third of a three-part series on creation and evolution. And we pretty much in you know parts one and two kind of laid a lot of groundwork uh, regarding the two, if you will, models of origins, uh, one being natural evolution, the other being you know, creation. Uh, we've talked about old earth, young earth, uh, and we've talked about a, a number of different categories of evidence, actual physical evidence in the natural world that we can look at in contrast to these two models and see which model is a better model to explain origins. You know, some people may say, well, you know, science has proven, quote unquote, you know, natural evolution, and that's all scientific and Bible is like, you know, separate, you know, that's like faith-based versus science-based. But as we've learned so far in parts one and two, that's not necessarily the case. There is available scientific evidence that points away from evolution toward creation that points away from an old earth to a young earth. And certainly we would encourage our listeners to go back and look at parts one and two, uh, preferably as, a, as a, a basis, if you will, or a foundation, if you will, before uh, listening to today's part three. Okay, so next, uh, let's talk a little bit about dating methods in ancient life. And in this section, we want to examine attempts to date formerly living objects using something called radiocarbon dating. Uh, sometimes it's also referred to as carbon dating or carbon-14 dating. And so, you know, this is a method for determining the age of an object containing organic material. Uh, and it's done by using the properties of radiocarbon, which, you know, at a scientific level is a radioactive isotope of carbon. And so I found a definition on Wikipedia that I'll just read. I thought it, it did a nice job of summarizing it. And, and it says carbon dating is based on the fact that radiocarbon, you know, what's referred to often as C14, is constantly being created in the atmosphere by the interaction of cosmic rays with atmospheric nitrogen. The resulting carbon-14 combines with atmospheric oxygen to form radioactive carbon dioxide, which is incorporated into plants by photosynthesis. Animals then acquire this C14 by eating the plants, and so when the animal or plant dies, it stops exchanging carbon with its environment. And thereafter, uh, the amount of carbon-14 it contains begins to decrease as that carbon-14 undergoes radioactive decay. This quote goes on to say, measuring the amount of carbon-14 in a sample from a dead plant or animal, such as a piece of wood or a fragment of bone, provides information that can be used to calculate when the animal or plant died. Uh, the older a sample is, the less carbon-14 there is to be detected. And because the half-life of carbon-14, which is 
the period of time after which you know half of a given sample will have decayed. Uh, it covers you know about 5,700 years, and uh, the oldest dates that can be reliably measured by this process date to approximately 50,000 years ago. Although special preparation methods occasionally make accurate analysis of older samples possible, so a lot there, but ultimately it just kind of gives you a, a definition of what this carbon dating is about and how it's used by scientists to date things. And I've seen estimates of up to eighty thousand years. So I think the key point here is that you know it's not able to date things that we're often told are millions or even billions of years old. And so if you do some research, and certainly in the material that uh, we've been referencing, uh, you'll find references to you know, good videos. Uh, there's even journal articles that you can find and so forth to learn more about how this carbon date, uh, 14 dating works. Uh, but there are some limitations uh, to radiocarbon dating. And, and a couple of them are, you know, can only date something that was once living, what we might call organic matter, like a person, like a tree plant matter, those kinds of things. As we touched on, it's really only reliable up to 50 to 80,000 years. And Jeff, I've seen estimates saying really super accurate, it's only about five to 7,000 years. Um, so, uh, but as you dig into this, what you'll also see is that some of the reliability uh, is affected because of things like nuclear testing, uh, pollution, uh, even natural variations in the environment can cause problems in accurately dating things. In fact, um, Jeff, I read an article this week, as a matter of fact, where carbon dating was used to date the shells of live mollusks, I guess, living off the island of Hawaii. And the carbon dating said that they were those shells were a thousand years old. Well, those mollusks were still living. And they don't live to be a thousand years. So it's just an example of because of the environment they were in, it just brought back an inaccurate date. And so anyhow, more, more detailed information on this. There's a lot you can really dig into. And as we talked about in the study material, Jeff, you've got references, right, on, on being able to dig into a little bit deeper in this area. Exactly. And, and you know, for people that don't have a physics background, you know, they may hear claims that, well, radiocarbon has proved that, you know, mankind's been around for, you know, tens of thousands of years. Uh, and that is, you know, based on some critical assumptions that the scientists may not often talk about and, and that the common layperson, you know, doesn't, doesn't even have a clue to. But, you know, we, as we wrap up our podcast today, one of the questions that we'll be using to sort of uh, cap things off near the end um, does talk about that kind of dating, and we'll we'll go into a little bit more detail when we hit that question. Yeah, absolutely. So let's shift gears now and talk about the fossil record. You know, things like dinosaurs and man. And so, when you look at the geologic record of the layers of sediment, so you know, whenever there are uh, digs, if you will, they're looking through different layers of sediment, and these you know layers of sediment turned into rock over time, and within those layers, you'll find evidence of fossils. So we've all probably heard of fossils and also things like, you know, the remains of plants and animals. Of course, the most popular, probably the most well-known fossils that we see in museums are dinosaurs. And uh, as I think we would all agree, you know, it's very fascinating to see like a big Tyrannosaurus Rex and, 
you know, so certainly it's it's very interesting to take a look at these and, and certainly with children, it captures their attention. And so, you know, from the study material, we can also study how the fossil record, including dinosaurs, fit within this biblical narrative. So let's just talk about a couple of things. And then once again, the material will have uh, more details. So when you think about the alleged evidence in the fossil record for the evolution of ape-like creatures into man, I would guess, Jeff, that most of our listeners have probably been taught or are certainly aware that, you know, for most scientists, it's sort of a foregone conclusion that we've all come from apes. And so, you know, we have this central question of, did man and ape evolve from a common ancestor, as many scientists claim, according to the fossil record? Well, if you look into this, there, you'll notice is that there's a distinct contrast between the origin of mankind, according to evolutionists, versus what creationists say. So, for instance, evolutionists believe that we descended from an ancestor common to both apes and man over five to ten million years ago. Creationists believe the biblical account, right? And the Bible talks about, you know, man was created separately from the animals. Adam was formed from dust. Eve was made from Adam's rib thousands of years ago. And then, of course, the Lord destroyed the earth by a flood because man was sinful. And then the planet was repopulated after the flood from Noah's family, a small group of eight. And uh, within that family, there was enough genetic diversity to result in the current races that we have today. So that's what the Bible talks about. That's what creationists believe in contrast to this theory of evolution. So when you look at just a couple of definitions, you know, the, if you look at the scientific terms hominid or homidae, uh, it's a group consisting of all modern and extinct great apes. And so that would be, you know, modern humans, chimpanzees, gorillas, and orangutans and all their ancestors. Uh, also ape men. So these are alleged transitory fossils and life forms between ancient apes and modern man. And then you may have heard of what's called the missing link. And this is a kind of a non-scientific term for a transitional fossil. So, you know, this term originated to kind of describe the hypothetical intermediate form in the evolutionary series of ancestors, you know, these anthropoid ancestors to anatomically humans or modern humans, something that's called hominization. And so what scientists will cite is a genetic difference of about one to 2% between modern apes and men is proof that, that, you know, hey, we're all closely related. You know, apes are common ancestors. Well, one thing as you dig into this deeper that you'll find is that this is really an inaccurate measure because it ignores many differences in the gene sequence. So just a couple quick facts here. We'll try not to, to lose you in, in these facts, but, you know, the, the 98 to 99% similarity between apes and men that figure comes from comparing only the DNA between humans and chimps that align. So this refers to any genetic sequence that is similar enough, you know, although not 100% match, that a computer program can't align them. So these single substitutions yield this 1% to 2% difference that they reference. Now, there are other differences within the aligned DNA, such as gaps where the whole sections of human DNA have no match to the sequence in chimp DNA and vice versa. These and other differences total approximately 16%. So if you look at that 16%, that's like 480 million 
base differences. Uh, what about the DNA that does not align? Well, millions of DNA bases outside the aligned regions in human DNA have no match in chimp DNA and vice versa. So approximately 4% of human DNA has no alignment to chimp DNA, what's called, I guess, DNA5, which means a glaring 20% total difference between human and chimp DNA. So there's not a 98 to 99% similarity overall. And when you think about 400 million, 80 million base differences, that's, that's very significant. So a lot more can be said about that as we've been talking about, you know, you can access the study material where in there, Jeff, you've put some time into having sections and uh, information about, you know, combining men and apes, making man out of apes, uh, making apes out of men like Homo erectus and Neanderthal man, which, you know, often is taught in classrooms. There is Lucy, and I'm not even sure how to pronounce this, Jeff. Austral yeah, Australopithecus. There we go. <laughs> Lucy, right? So scientists cite these fossils as a transition from ape-like ancestors to modern man. And uh, we were talking about earlier in the podcast uh, about the Creation Museum here in the United States and Cincinnati. And they actually have a nice section about this Lucy uh, and actually have the fossils from Lucy there in that museum. And they, they kind of go through why, once again, this is a misnomer, this belief that it's a transition-like fossil. So more, uh, more material on that that you can study about. And, and so once again, you know, you, there's so much more that you can be learning that you'll find it interesting, you know, how man tries to explain and justify their theories, which conflict with the Bible. So, Jeff, I'll, I'll uh, turn it over to you for any other thoughts you have on this. A lot of, even in this brief coverage we've had, right, a, a lot of information, but yet a lot more that can be learned on this. Well, exactly. And like I was referring earlier to uh, radiocarbon and most of our listeners are probably not physicists, you know, similarly here, you know, we're, we're talking to some degree about genetics and, you know, most of our listeners may not be, you know, geneticists or biologists, but it's one of those areas where as you dig deeper and you look more closely at the available evidence and, and you know, there is no argument that there are, you know, there's sedimentary layers, there's, you know, preserved you know, bones and other things from, you know, ancient animals, you know, that's there. Uh, that's obvious. Uh, the question is one of, okay, how do you interpret that evidence? And, you know, as you were alluding to, you know, there's like a, a gap to be bridged between the uh, available, uh, you know, fossils and ancient animals that are, you know, ape-like and those that are, you know, man-like. And in attempts to bridge that gap, uh, you know, some scientists will say, well, you know, this is a, an ancient ape that has some human characteristics, or here is an ancient human that has some ape characteristics, and try to bridge that gap. But bottom line is you often wind up still with that gap. Ancient apes and, and ancient man, uh, still somewhat separate. But again, yeah, again, there's a lot of detail there that, that we would certainly refer suggest people go back to the website, go back to the material we've got on the website uh, and dig deeper into what is commonly asserted as, quote unquote, the truth uh, from an evolutionary perspective. Yeah. And I know throughout uh, the podcast, we've been making references to the Bible and, and scriptures and so forth. And I guess, Jeff, the way we want to finish up before we answer a couple of questions that have been submitted on this is, is just, you know, what does the Bible teach uh, overall? 
Right. Well, and it's relatively straightforward, uh, and and certainly a lot of it is anchored in Genesis one and two. But as I think we have observed, uh, that is not just limited to an ancient creation myth that Moses just happened to put into Genesis. But it's also uh, endorsed, if you will, by subsequent authors, you know, to include Jesus and Paul and Peter. And so if we start to, you know, question the beginning of the Bible, uh, Genesis 1 and 2 as a historical account, then we have to start discrediting uh, a lot of the subsequent authors and bottom lines, we have to discredit the whole thing, uh, the whole Bible. Uh, but at least from a biblical creationist model perspective, you know, Genesis 1 and 2, you know, in the beginning, not Big Bang, but in the beginning, God, you know, watery chaos, initial creation of light, uh, separation of the watery mess, if you will, above and below the firmament, dry land, land plants, sun, moon, stars on day four, marine life and birds, uh, day six with land animals, man, garden of Eden, Eve, Eve etc. And then uh, day seven, God rested. Now, that's presented as an entirely historical account. So each day, morning and evening. God created, God said, these things happen, poof, poof, poof. Um, but more fundamentally, not only was there a creator, not only was there a creation, but that involved man and giving man a somewhat of a purpose, uh, if you will. You know, we're not just random collections, as I think Carl Sagan said, of star stuff uh, that were, you know, created in the image of God and we have a spiritual purpose. Uh, Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10 says, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Uh, and also for godly offspring, uh, Malachi 2.15 says, but did he not make them one, having a remnant of the spirit? And why one? He seeks godly offspring. Uh, and certainly, um, in addition to man having a purpose, you know, God also, as part of his creation, you know, provides uh, the natural creation as a means uh, of revealing at least part of him. Um, and we can kind of see that to some degree, uh, Romans chapter one, uh, but especially, you know, Hebrews chapter 11, verses one through three, which says, now faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen, for by it the elders obtained a good testimony. By faith, we understand that the worlds were framed by the word of God, so that the things which are seen were not made of things which are visible. And likewise, on down to verse 6 of Hebrews 11. But without faith, it is impossible to please him. For he who comes to God must believe that he is, and that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. And so, so we certainly see that part of this faith is not only believing in Jesus, let's say, you know, as our personal Savior, Lord, etc. But it's also believing in what he said. That certainly ties all the way back into uh, Genesis, which he referenced uh, in Matthew chapter uh, 19, I believe it is, about the, you know, the foundation of marriage. And in the beginning, God created them, you know, male and female, etc. Uh, which says Jesus endorsed the creation account. So if you're going to say you believe in Jesus, then you need to believe in the uh, creation account uh, and have evidence-based faith, 
which we've been kind of talking about. It's not a blind faith. It's an evidence-based faith, even in the, from a scientific perspective, evidence-based faith that indeed God is, that he is a creator, and that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. Brian, any uh, any thoughts before we move into the questions? Uh, just one final thought. Yeah, I'd like to go back to a passage that you read at the very beginning of this series when we were talking about Romans chapter 1 and verse 18, where it says, For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead. So no doubt the Bible is a faith-based system, if you will. And we need to believe that God created the heavens and the earth. But what I like about this passage is it says, you know, if you just kind of look at this thing logically, you see the change of seasons, you see, you know, solar eclipses that we know within seconds will occur. All of these organized elements of the universe, it points to a supreme being. It's a, it clearly reveals that there is a God. And if so, what does that mean? And so... Anyhow, just want the listeners to to think about these things because ultimately, yes, it does require faith. But as we've been pointing out, if you look at it closely and you look at the evidence, the universe itself, those sorts of things, it becomes more apparent what's true. So anyhow. Good points. So I think that takes us to uh, some questions, related questions that have been submitted by our um the people who visit our uh, website uh, and there's a ask a question uh, button uh, or menu item on the main page that you know anyone anywhere on the planet anytime day or night you know can submit a question um, i think brian the first one is for you comes from chris and he uh, writes in old world versus new world how do we address non-believer to say the world is um, you know, 6,000, 4,000, 6,000, 10,000 years old, roughly, uh, when there's quote unquote fossils and alleged scientific evidence that the world is, and then he um, you know, quotes a figure here, uh, I think the latest thinking is like 4 billion years old. Uh, I mean, you know, we can quibble over a few thousand or, or a few billion, but it's, it's a huge difference, right, between the two models. You know, how do we address that to a non-believer, Brian? Yeah, so as we've kind of been talking about, you know, many of the objects that are dated are based on estimates because, you know, you, scientists are not able to really date something that's supposed to be a million and billion years old. And so because there's no scientific way to prove something is that old, uh, we have to be skeptical, right? We have to question, you know, what are they basing that estimate on? Uh, scientists often, you know, tout the fact that it's all based on empirical evidence and these sorts of things. Well, there's no evidence that would suggest or prove something is millions of billions of years old. Anyhow, as we touched on just a little while ago, just a quick reminder of some of the scientific limitations of radiocarbon dating. You know, So this carbon dating we talked about is really the only method currently that can give us a pretty good idea back to, once again, seven, 10,000, up to 80,000 years, I guess. Um, so, you know, that type of dating can only really date something that was organic or living, such as trees and people, that kind of thing, not non-living things like rocks. And, you know, this type of dating is based on the ratio of carbon-12 and carbon-14. And because carbon-12 does not decay, it can it's, it's really a good reference against carbon-14. And as you dig into that a little bit more, it would make more sense. But for carbon-14 dating to be accurate, 
you know, the rate of decay of carbon-14 must remain constant over the years. And, you know, as we were talking about previously, you know, evidence indicates that the opposite is true due to varying conditions. So, for instance, in the 50s and all the way through the present day, there's been nuclear tests that have occurred uh, in, the, in throughout the world, which puts more of this carbon-12 into the atmosphere and therefore can kind of skew this, you know, comparison to carbon-14. And so as a result of these, you know, these and half-life limitations, um, once again, carbon dating is only reliable up to a few thousand years. And estimates, you know, can range anywhere from 7,500 being very accurate to up to 80,000 years. But you'll never see something where it's accurate to a million years. It's just not possible because of the half-life consideration. So there's also some other problems that have been uncovered over the years. So, so for instance, sometimes organic material is discovered and it's estimated to be something like 50,000 years old. But months later, as they continue to dig in this same strata, uh, they might find some inorganic material like a pot or a vase. And they compare that to other archeological evidence, such as you know the understanding of the culture that made that vase and definitive proof as to when that culture existed. Maybe it was you know 6,000 BC or something like that. Well, it's proven that this material really is only 5,000 years old. And so you, you would say, well, how are they off by 45,000 years? Well, it just shows you to some extent, certainly when you start getting out to that 50 to 80,000 range, how inaccurate it can be. And so that's just one example. I, I've heard Jeff of, you know, they've looked in a strata and said, well, this is, you know, a million years old. And then they find a footprint in the strata below it. Uh, you know, things like that, that just disprove, if you will, uh, what these estimates often are. Another thing that I found was interesting in some of my research is that, you know, testing is often skewed to the estimate given by the scientist. So if a scientist finds some organic material and they say, you know, hey, this material is 50,000 years old, uh, when they conduct these tests and let's say they perform 10 tests on this organic material, seven kind of showed definitively that, you know, it's probably between five and 10,000 years old, two may be inconclusive or may show that it could be older than let's say 10,000 years, then oftentimes these shorter estimates are assumed to be inaccurate because the scientist says, well, it's, it should be 50,000 years old. And so they discard <laughs> the seven out of 10 that really would show that's probably the more accurate date. So I find it amazing how much influence scientists can have over dating when really you wanna do things like blind tests, you know, double blind tests so that no man or no person can influence this testing and the age of things. So anyhow, these are just a, a few uh, facts and thoughts regarding why uh, a an estimate of 4 billion years is really fallacious because there's no way to prove that. And more importantly, there's much more evidence to show, you know, the five to 10,000 year range, for instance, and, and how that can be much more accurate and proven, if you will. So as we've been saying all along, we encourage everyone to study more about these challenges. And Jeff, I just wonder, you know, if this is just another way that God has allowed man to exhibit his folly by just throwing out millions and billions of years. Yeah, it could be. Well, and admittedly, I mean, you know, we, we've been talking about radiocarbon uh, dating and its limitations in terms of alleged time span. But there are other radiometric um, isotopes, if you will, um, that involve like, you know, uranium, plutonium and, and others that have longer half-lives 
uh, that allegedly can date things out into the millions and out into the billions. But I, I like the word that you used, prove. That's because all these uh, radiometric you know, dating methods, whether we're talking about carbon or uranium or, or some other uh, you know, radioactive element, are all based on a number of assumptions. And in some ways, we'll get into that a little bit more in, in the next question that we're going to answer. But they're all based on assumptions. Uh, and if any of those assumptions prove to or are you know incorrect, then the method is faulty. And again, we'll get into more of that in, in the next question. But uh, again, keep in mind, you know, from a proof perspective, you know, a lot of these things are, are built based on what we think might have been happen, or based on certain you know assumptions about current events being a uh, reflection of past events. Uh, and again, it, it's, all, a lot, it's all built on assumptions. But I won't belabor that right now because we're going to go into even more detail, I think, in the next question, Brian. Yeah, so this next question comes to us from Brendan. Uh, and he asked, as per the Holy Bible, there were 102 generations between Adam and Jesus Christ. Assuming that each generation procreated once every 30 years, the approximate time span would be 102 times 30, equaling 3,060 years. He says it is, a, it is an established fact that Homo sapiens was on the planet approximately 30,000 years ago. In such circumstances, how do you explain the gap of approximately, he says, 270,000 years I believe yeah, it really probably 27,000 yeah, 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 27, years. Right. Yeah. And, you know, it, it's a good question. And, you know, there's just a, uh, just a real, I'm going to make a real quick side comment. Uh, you know, there's quite a bit of difference between 27,000 and 270,000, but, you know, you start tossing around big numbers. Um, and the real question is, okay, we need to look a little bit deeper. Now it's interesting that, that he makes this uh, assumption about number of generations and number of years per generation. Uh, actually, there's a person back in the 17th century uh, by the name of James Usher, who actually took the biblical genealogies uh, that were you know described you know in the book of Genesis and started you know laying them out along with the ages of people it was given again in Genesis. And he dated creation based on that method of roughly around 4,000 BC. Now, others have come along and they've detected some irregularities in those generational uh, he begat, he begat, he begat you know, records that, you know, there, it may not necessarily be literal father, son. It may be grandfather, grandson, or, you know, a little bit of leeway. Uh, and, and when people look at it from that perspective, uh, some of them have pushed creation back to mm, maybe 7,000 BC, you know, maybe 10,000 BC at most. Uh, but you know, whether we're talking 4,000 BC or 10,000 BC, that's that's still um, pales in comparison to allegations that the universe is 14 billion years old. The Earth is eight or uh, roughly four billion years. And, you know, modern Homo sapiens appeared around, you know, 200,000 years ago. His question, I think, um, shows uh, a little bit of a bias. And it's a very common bias. You know, he uses the term, it's an established fact that Homo sapiens, etc. And that's what most people claim. I mean, that's the typical claim, you know, from the scientific, quote unquote, scientific establishment. 
uh, and that is indeed based on dating methods that, as we've mentioned already, use radioactive decay. And for us to come along and say, well, no, that's not true. It's really a very tiny fraction of that, you know, age of man, age of the planet, age of the universe. Uh, and as we've been trying to say, you know, these methods are based on several assumptions. So let's kind of dig into that just a little bit more. There are assumptions regarding the original ratio of these two radioactive, uh, the, the two elements that are typically used in, in radioactive dating. You know, the parent that, that's radioactive that decays into a daughter element that's stable. Okay. So there's assumptions made about the original ratios of the radioactive element or the parent in the original sample. There's assumptions about the sample being closed. I know that's a little bit of a technical term, but you can't have any of the parent, if you will, the radioactive parent escaping the sample. You can't have any of the parent come into the sample after it was originally formed. You can't have any of the daughter element escaping. You can't have any, you know, extra daughter coming in, you know, to to taint the sample, if you will. It's a, it has to be a closed system, no gain or loss over time. It's another assumption. And there's also assumption about constant decay rates, right, from parent to daughter. And in many ways, Brian, I, I like to uh, illustrate it, if you will. If people are familiar with what's sometimes called an hourglass, you know, with sand inside the hourglass that starts off you know, all the sand is in the top of the hourglass, and then slowly the sand dribbles through the narrow uh, neck, if you will, of the glass to fill the bottom part of the glass. Hopefully our listeners are familiar with that concept. Well, and, and yes, if you start the hourglass with all the sand at the top and the rate remains relatively stable, and you know what that rate is, you can kind of determine, you know, how long it takes for all the sand to go from the top to the bottom. Okay, that's great. But you have to make an assumption. You have to assume all the sands at the top to begin with. You have to assume that the rate of the sand is falling is constant. You have to assume that there's no extra sand falling into the top. You have to assume there's no sand dribbling out elsewhere. It's a closed system. Anyway, uh, a lot of those assumptions are unprovable. Right? So I, I've got a, I got a method based on these assumptions uh, that, as you said earlier, use the word proven, can't be proven. And as you also alluded to, there's some situations where, yeah, we take, and I've read this, you know, we take a modern lava flow that happened in our lifetime and you carbon date it, or not carbon date it, sorry, because that's only for living things, but you, you know, use uranium dating, uh, et cetera. And the estimates comes back, well, it's a million years old. Like, well, uh, no. <laughs> and so there's those kinds of anomalies that scientists tend to gloss over, ignore, or the common public don't hear about. And the ones we're kind of pointing out says, well, yeah, you need to dig a little bit deeper into understanding some of these assumptions and the fact that the assumptions, you know, can't be proven. But yet when you do compare what is available, at least that has some historical other anchoring point, again, observation of a modern lava flow or a pot, if you will, in the, in the record, you get all these discrepancies. One reason that we have these assumptions is something called uniformitarianism, which says, well, I can, I can see what's going on today and I'll use those kinds of observations and rates and processes. And I will start to make some assumptions since I wasn't around, you know, thousands, tens of thousands, millions, billions of years ago, I'll make some assumptions that, you know, current rates can be extrapolated back in time. 
And again, that's uniformitarianism. And as we've said, that's kind of an assumption that in some ways, some of the evidence says, no, you can't make that assumption. You know, there's things have been uniform, you know, across all time. And I know that's just kind of touching the tip of the iceberg. You know, we would certainly encourage our people back to our website at biblequestions.org and look under the letter E for the topic of evolution. We've got a couple articles in there that are kind of focused a little bit more tightly on this dating controversy. Uh, there's a couple that are uh, titled How Old is the Earth? And there's also one called Creation and Evolution, A Closer Look. So that's under E for Evolution. Also encourage people to go back and look under F for Flood, which was a, an extremely discon discontinuous major you know, resetting, if you will, of natural processes and creation within you know, a year of, you know, massive changes to the face of the planet. And so that's another good source for our listeners to dig in deeper. Uh, Brian, any thoughts before we uh, wrap things up? Yeah, just one thought. And that's, you know, I encourage our listeners, as we've been talking about, right, to learn to learn more about this subject. And also, you know, talk to your children. I mean, if you have children, uh, talk to them about, you know, evolution versus creation, uh, especially if they attend public school, because in public school, Generally, evolution is taught as a fact, uh, and the biblical account of creation is really not even mentioned. So it's important that we as parents make sure they understand this and see what the Bible actually says about it. You know, Brian, that's a good point, for, especially for you know parents and, and grandparents, because whether or not you talk to your kids, your teachers are talking to them. Whether or not you're talking to them, you know, they're getting a steady dose through, you know, TV and, and special programs, et cetera, of old earth evolution. And if you're not talking to your kids about, you know, what the Bible has to say, and if you're not talking to them in, at least to some degree in any from an equivalent scientific perspective, um, you're going to lose them. Because, you know, again, the, the dominant dogma, the dominant doctrine today is natural evolution, which leaves no room for a creator, which leaves no room for Genesis 1 and 2, which leaves no room for the special creation of man, which leaves no room for what Jesus was saying and, and Paul and Peter and, and Moses, you know, about the creation, which basically says, you know, Christianity, yeah, it's a myth. It's just a myth, you know, based on mythology. Uh, just like a lot of other, you know, alleged religious systems that are, you know, you know, based on, you know, creation myths. And like you said, Brian, you know, you'll lose your kids. Anyway, don't mean to belabor it, but it certainly is, is a strong warning to our listeners. To help you with that, you know, to kind of give you some insight into some of the scientific basis we've been talking about. Again, go back to our website, biblequestions.org. As I mentioned earlier, under topics E for evolution, uh, F for flood. Uh, C for creation, as well as Christian evidences, and especially under the lessons, Christian living, Christian evidences menu item uh, is a lot of the material that we use for our podcast, and we would certainly encourage you to refer to that. I might also mention there was a book I used when I created the uh, the class for our, for our teenagers, uh, and you know I. I wasn't asked to promote it. You know, I don't get any money from it, but it is a good book. It's a good reference. Uh, the author's Ken Ham. Uh, the title is The New Answers Book, number one. 
Uh, and I guess there was a, the new answers book number two that he also came up with. Anyway, the same person is associated with a, the full-size replica arc, uh, which happens to be in Kentucky, which I think you've referred to. Bottom line, via that book and or website and just searching the internet, there's a lot of material out there that you can arm yourself to confront this, you know, dominant scientific, quote unquote, you know, dogma that indeed there was a creator, there was a creation, and we are the product of that. Thank you for listening to this edition of the Bible Questions podcast. We invite you to visit our website, biblequestions.org, where you can submit a Bible question to be answered. And you can also search archives where we have answered several hundred Bible questions over the years. Our website also has a host of free Bible study material, free correspondence courses, as well as sermons and a host of other material. Please stop by and check it out.